Hello, and welcome to the History in Today podcast. This week, Katie and I talked to Kay Weber about historical art from many different cultures, as well as the difference between appreciation and appropriation of the cultures of others. This is a special episode, as there are visuals involved, so if you go to our Instagram page, at History in Today Pod, you can follow along with what we're looking at. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. So, before we delve into the conversation today, I want to give a little recognition to uh, Kay's previous contributions to the show. Uh, we actually have had many, uh, many different uh, covers for the show. Uh, different episodes have different covers. You guys have probably noticed the, the basic History in Today logo that I made back when I started. But since then, uh, we have had wonderful art from Kay uh, on many of our episodes. Uh, some of my personal favorites are the season finale of season one, where we did imperialism with the Earth and the Eagles, and the RBG one that we did this season, and uh, a bunch of other ones that are all really nice. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for like letting me do that. It was super fun. <laughs> yeah, we totally, totally appreciate it. So uh, yeah, so this episode, um, because we're going to take advantage of your uh, your art ability and art knowledge again, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about some art uh, throughout history. So yep. yeah, so the first piece of art that you wanted to uh, you wanted to talk about was the uh, the Hall of Bulls in Lascaux. Uh, do you uh, want to delve into it? Yeah, it's pronounced actually Lascaux, which I found out the hard way after doing a whole presentation on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was just going to basically talk about kind of like, um, I guess, art through like the lens of kind of like telling a lot about history, um, particularly with this cave. Um, you know, there's like a lot of caves like this around, you know, various areas of the world that kind of show, um, where people lived, but this one is like the most extensive version of that. Um, like this is like really, really huge. You're actually not, I don't think you're able to visit this cave anymore just because of, um, the pigments used in like the paint. Um, if you... I think if you breathe in the cave a lot, it causes the paint to oxidize and then it'll like start growing mold and stuff and ruin the paint. So there's actually a couple of um, recreations of the caves in like various, I think there's one like really close to it. Um, but yeah, um, the whole cave has like various depictions of different animals and it is really good for kind of telling you a lot about what people at the time were eating, what you know they were doing in their free time especially because um if you're looking at example pictures of it it's like for what you could do at the time really really accurate um especially because if you're thinking about this these were painted you know probably during the night by firelight and you weren't looking at a reference picture so all of these paintings and um you know line art and there are even not i'm not gonna like show a picture of it because i can't find it but there are some actual sculptures of animals um, in the caves that were done completely from memory. So I think it's also really interesting because it shows kind of how people have done art, like just from their brain for a long time. Um, I mean, obviously for a lot of art, reference pictures are a really big deal, but um, just for these, it's so cool how it was just done off like the top of the head. Um, but yeah, uh, I can talk a little bit about like, I guess like the pigments used, it's actually really interesting because when you're thinking of these um, paintings, you're probably picturing someone like using like a piece of charcoal and just kind of like drawing on the wall. Um, and while they did do that a lot, 
there also my teacher kind of taught me about how there were other methods they used where one was you would chew up the pigment in your mouth and use this kind of uh, piece of wood or straw and then actually spit it out onto the um, wall, which sounds super gross, but it, <laughs> I think it's kind of cool that like you would use your own body to like make and use the pigments, um, especially in a lot of examples of, oh, I forget the name of it, but the oldest example of like a human handprint is actually using that method of like spitting the pigment onto a rock so you would place your hand onto the wall and just kind of spit the pigment around your hand um so that's really cool um yeah i don't know <laughs> i can talk i don't know what else to talk about now <laughs> i have a question um so you're talking a lot about the types of methods that have been used to to you know get to the final product of yeah. what is on these um cave paintings i know you're gonna go into other um, forms of art, different um, periods of time. Um, would you say that any portion of like the methods to create the art, like does that reveal anything about the culture that created it? Or would you say that it it isn't directly related? So is it more about the final product and how it looks that says no, reveals something about the culture? It's definitely yeah. both. Even with art today, a lot about the materials you use can talk about like, you know, what's happening at the time, like say if you were going to use a very expensive pigment versus something that's very cheap and like mass produced, that can tell you a lot about like what's happening like politically, like whether or not the artist is well off financially. So obviously that's not going to be an indicator in this case, but it tells you a lot about, um, you know, what vegetation was around at the time, what animals and like um, plants were being eaten at the time. It also tells you um, a lot about what was valued by the people at the time, um, especially because, like I mentioned earlier, doing these like cave paintings was actually like a ton of effort, especially for someone that like the rest of your day is comprised of like just trying to survive and like making clothing, making or preparing food, going hunting, stuff like that. So the fact that they they took the time to like value you know, making and drawing things also says a lot about that. So yeah, it's it's very indicative of both, you know, the, the final project, or sorry, final product definitely tells you a lot about that, but also like the what they use to make it does like kind of indicate that as well. Awesome. Yeah, sorry for just kind of like going off on a, a tangent there. <laughs> no problem. That's what this, that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> So the next thing, the next one that you uh, highlighted for us, uh, you want to talk about was the Venus of Willendorf, or as it has recently been renamed, the nude woman, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. That's, that's yeah. on purpose. So okay. the reason it was called Venus of Willendorf is because a lot of female sculptures are called Venus because um, you're obviously going to make that connection in your head to, you know, the goddess of beauty, because this is kind of one of the only indicators of like a female bodily depiction of the time so they uh this was in initially thought to be like you know depicting uh for like kind of a symbol of fertility and like the ideal female body and like this really beautiful thing but um recently it's actually been found out that or not it isn't like because this object is so old there's no way to actually determine what its function was um but the, there's a lot of theories that talk about how this is actually um, a self-portrait of a pregnant woman. 
um, which you can't really tell from the front view picture I included um, that that's what it would be, especially because it's so um, stylized. But if you mm -hmm. kind of tilt it um, where you're looking down at the body from where the head would be, it's a really good representation of what it would look like if you were looking down at your own body. Um, so that's why it's like now called nude woman because we're not actually sure if it would be like an idealized uh, version of a woman. Um, but yeah, it's kind of cool how this was found. Um, it's, it was actually found by like a random farmer just like while he was tilling his fields, which um, I think that's just so funny that like this like really important like historical art object was just like in a random field somewhere. <laughs> um, but yeah. Do you think the uh, do you think the self portrait uh, theory is supported by the fact that it doesn't uh, I don't know is the the fact that it doesn't have a face is that a current thing or is that a, it started with a face and time oh, is with it by the way that's an intentional thing um, okay. there the only like deterioration of this object is just the fact that it's kind of weathered over time um, it's not like while there there are other examples of prehistoric art that have faces mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the time uh, there like it depends it depends on the object sometimes there weren't sometimes there were i think that definitely does kind of make it seem like it's a self-portrait especially because at the time the only ways you would really see your face is like if you were looking in a puddle or a body of water so you're really not going to have a good idea of what your face would look like as opposed to if you were looking at another person right. um so personally i think that's i think that that is a good indicator that this is a self-portrait but um it is such an old object that it could be like a cultural thing or like maybe depicting headwear um but yeah i personally think it's because it's self-portrait and you can't like you can't see your own face without a mirror um yeah i can here i can go on to like the next object so like talking more about um I guess more well-known cultures um, is kind of my favorite object in like Egyptian um, history, which is William the Hippo. <laughs> um, it's from like roughly the 12th dynasty um, during the Egyptian like um, empire, I guess. Um, okay. It's made out of this material called faience, which is like this, it's this super strange, like really complex method of getting that like really distinct blue um color and i don't know it's my favorite object just because of how cute it is and the fact that like they named it william because of like the era it was found in um i don't know it's very cute i have a little plushie of it <laughs> so it's definitely my favorite um another really interesting uh thing about this object that i love is the fact that i don't know if you guys can tell by the picture but the two back legs were actually intentionally broken so it's not like it was broken like over time or it broke just because of like it being left in like a tomb for a long time. It was intentionally broken because obviously like we know hippos are dangerous, but um, that would have been well known at the time as well in Egypt. So the hippo was meant to represent like an actual hippo in like the grave of the person. So it would be like um guarding their tomb but because you didn't want the person to wake up in the afterlife and then get like attacked by the hippo um it was like purposefully um crippled so that it wouldn't um hurt whoever was in the grave um it's also really cool because even though uh it has those kind of negative associations with like chaos and destruction and stuff because it's a dangerous animal it also has positive qualities 
which there, those are those black markings on the side, which um, represent like regeneration, life-giving, protection, and also its natural environment, like which is the Nile River. Um, so it's those like um, lotus buds and lotus flowers and leaves are just kind of the natural environments in. So I think that's kind of a cool um, juxtaposition on the piece. Um, I, have a, I have a question. Um, so there's obviously juxtaposition present between the positive qualities that this you know particular animal has and the negative um, sort of aspects that it brings to the table. Do you think in any way that that's like a reflection of actual Egyptian society? Like, does it also reflect like the positive and negatives of the overall society? Does it reveal anything about the like an overall sense or is it something very specific to that to that animal um it's a little bit of both it's specific to the animal but it also does relate back to specifically egyptian mythology um as with a lot of other cultures um they have like a th there's like this connection with the natural world um i didn't mention it as much in the um other one but there's a lot of like depictions of animals in um different cultures and it each one means like a different thing so it is a little bit in, like it does kind of tell you about the culture and like um what they were like kind of and like what what they had kind of like an affinity towards and like what animals they felt were like really important and it also kind of showed how much like their natural environment was a big aspect of you know their culture and life um not that it's not today i just think today like there's less of a kind of impact on it in a lot of more like i guess modern or like urban settings yeah that's really interesting i just um i was asking because um one of one of the similar projects that i did about native people native peoples was about um it was a similar thing where, you know, in the native culture, um, wild horses are deemed as dangerous and um, horses that are tamed or, I don't wanna like say like captured, but like domesticated by native people, like when they're caught in the wild and then like they're domesticated, like it also has like those native negative connotations, but it also like reveals like overarching um, themes about, because the horse was introduced by European peoples, um, but it's definitely become like a huge part of the way, you know, natives are, you know, depicted. So not, not to like take away, but that was like the background for why I was asking, because it not only reveals like about the animal itself, but it reveals about the society that, you know, has created yeah. it. No, that's actually really cool. Um, <laughs> I don't think the hippo was uh, brought in to like Africa at all. Um, actually, I didn't, I never thought about the fact that like horses weren't, native to um this area um that's actually so like <laughs> i never thought about that before now huh yeah the exchange of goods in different parts of the world is crazy like the fact that potatoes weren't yeah, native to i was just gonna mention that is like <laughs> i think that's like one of the <laughs> it's like you never realize until you're like yeah. wait that is not like well it's because <laughs> like my past family members would have like pretty much only eaten like potatoes but it's not actually like native to where like we're from mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
yeah, yeah it's so like that with other other animals too but we, we don't have to get into that but that was just <laughs> the reason why i asked so yeah no i mean it, it definitely does tell you something about like the culture especially because like the fact that this animal was in a tomb like um death was a really big part of egyptian culture and like obviously a lot of what we know about them comes from finding tombs and finding you know those older artifacts i mean the first thing a lot of people think of when they think of like egyptian culture or like just ancient egypt in general is like the pyramids um so it it, it does show you that they kind of valued having a good afterlife um a lot and kind of like bringing things with you into the afterlife that even though they might have like negative connotations like are representative of real life um i could go on a whole tangent about like afterlives but I, i'll spare you that but, like it's just like a really long, like complicated thing. Thank you. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so the next thing that you showed us was the, the portrait of a young woman in red, which you said was from the Roman period. Yeah. So around uh, AD 90. This is what actually like really, what? What do, you, what do you like about that? <laughs> um, it's actually related a little bit to Egypt. This is like during the Roman kind of occupation, I guess, of Egypt. Um, but this this girl would be, I guess, of Roman descent. Um, it's again based on that kind of Egyptian culture of like you know, really wanting to make the most of afterlife and stuff. Um, but I just thought it was so like, like cool that there's this really like, um, it's I don't know. There's just something about the portrait, especially the eyes, where it's like you're really looking at this person that lived such a long time ago. So I think it's really cool that there's this connection to this person. You're going to know almost nothing about, like, this, besides just this portrait, because obviously there wasn't going to be much other information on this person aside from this portrait. So I don't know. I just really like that it's, like, this look at this person that lived, like, such a long time ago. Yeah. And this is, like, height of the Pax Romana. So this is, you know, mm. Rome at, you know, its most Rome <laughs> step. Mm -hmm. And I think that's cool that, you know, at, you know, the height of an empire that we consider to be one of like the most, you know, classic empires, uh, you have a lot of really cool culture and art. So, I, oh, no, Katie. Oh, I have a quick question. Sorry. Um, yeah. So you said that it also, um, you know, the portrait of the young woman in red also has some connection to um, a little bit of Egyptian culture. Um, is it like common in this in this time period would you say it's for um artists to like take elements from other cultures like is that something that oh, is yeah definitely. characteristic yeah especially within this area um i didn't mention it before but there's a lot of trade going on between areas and while a lot of places are very much like they want to keep their own like culture and aesthetics and stuff um there, there is trade going on. So often you, if you like a certain aspect from a culture, you'll take that and kind of try to incorporate it in your art. Um, so yeah, there's definitely like a little bit of like cultural exchange and artistic exchange. Um, it's not like a ton, like you're not like getting people from like all different parts of the world, like into one thing, but yeah, you're definitely getting a little bit of cross-cultural, um, I guess like, uh uh exchange yeah <laughs> and it's also awesome. important to remember it's also important to remember that uh rome controlled egypt throughout the box romana so after after antony and cleopatra fell 
uh, Rome, you know, Egypt was as part of as part of Rome as Georgia is a part of the U.S. So, you know, we refer to the U.S. as a melting pot today. Rome is definitely the prototypical melting pot. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so I think that that's kind of why you see a lot of like Egyptian and Roman culture merging at the time. But then as Kay said, you don't see as much like outer, like outside of Rome merging culture because they, they kind of stayed within the borders a lot. I don't know if this is the same with other cultures. I need to do more research with it, but um, I'm taking African art history this semester. Um, and my teacher has talked a lot about how, um, even though there will be some like cross-cultural like um you know uh like they'll take stuff from different areas there is like very much like they want to preserve their own style and like conventions of making art and like their own like aesthetics so it could be that like even though you are seeing that cross-cultural thing like that's why there's such like like very like specific styles to each area that makes sense yeah, I know the word exchange is like it feels like we use it a lot. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but it seems like it's also it seems like it's also the only word to use. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the next thing uh, you showed us was the Ajax and Achilles, which I think is cool because that's that's a Greek, uh, Greek yeah. reference from 540 uh, BCE, so height of the Greek Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, would you want to talk about that? Yeah, um, this is actually one of my favorite examples of a method of painting um it's so this is a terracotta um vase i guess um it's called an, i don't know how to pronounce this amphora <laughs> um yeah um and there's like a ton of these like everywhere like, this was just like a really standard thing but because there were so many of them um potters would make a lot of different um illustrations on them and the method of so there's there's a couple different types types of um painting you can do there's just this like simple black and white there's the kind of like dark reddish color you can use um as well and that's due to the firing method um especially on this one you can kind of see towards the bottom a little bit of the red um but so what you would end up doing is um incorporating you would first paint it like in black slip or red slip. Well, actually the red was more so the background color, but um, I'll get into that a little bit later. But you would, um, while firing it, either include or exclude uh, oxygen in the kiln. Um, and that would kind of bring out a, like a specific color. So you would get the image, um, which I think is really cool. Cause usually like when you do um, pottery nowadays, you literally just like slap the colors on it and fire it and you don't have to worry about like um including different colors at all but the fact that they had to like think about like the oxygen and where to place you had to do it in like specific layers i thought that was just really interesting and also because um these are almost like little storybooks in a way and that they tell like stories and they use it through like not only like the actual like um just the picture but they because it's only one picture they have to use a lot of like symbolism and you can't uh see it but actually it's really cool the artist that made this actually used a little bit of text in it to like really drive home who this is depicting um 
you, you like there's like little like text in Greek at the top that just shows like the names of each um person and like like where this is and stuff. Um, so I don't know. I thought that was really cool. So yeah. So the next the next piece of art we want to talk about is this funerary crater in the geometric style, which you say is uh, circa nine hundred to six hundred BCE. Yeah. And uh, you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah. So like I said, most of these don't have like specific names like other artwork because they were just general use. Um, and the interesting thing about this funerary crater is it's actually instead of a gravestone, it's like a grave marker. So people would just put these like where either the person was buried or if they were cremated, they would put the ashes either in the ground or in the crater. Um, and yeah, uh, like like you said, it's in the geometric style, which like if you were going to compare like, you know, a more like simplistic art style to a more like involved art style, like in modern time, um, the same thing was happening back then. They would use either more like simplistic styles or the more like kind of complex um, style like you would see in like a marble carving or a like jar um but yeah um I just thought this particular piece was really interesting because it depicts like the funerary procession of the person who's actually being buried like uh, like the, the person that this is for is being depicted in the crater so I just think that's really interesting because it it shows that both the potter would have had to have had a knowledge of how the funeral was going to go and because like this would have had to have like shown the specific person so I think that's really interesting that it shows like a unique like just just like one small person's like experience in the culture um but yeah okay <laughs> awesome yeah I was gonna ask you a question about like what what value do you think or what I don't know how to I don't know how to ask it, but but what what is the most important like theme or aspect of associating art with burials? But you kind of answered it. Um, oh, <laughs> I don't know if there's any like specific um, any specific role that art has in burials that you find like most interesting. Um, um, I think it's but... just the fact that it's a lot of times um, one of the things we find the most in terms of um, older art. Um, obviously, like, the closer you get to current times, the more stuff we have. Like, obviously, with Roman and Greek um, and even Egyptian uh, societies, we have, like, those big buildings that they leave behind and other objects that weren't specifically related to funerary stuff. But um, funerary stuff has, like, a lot of, like, you would be buried with a lot of, you know, your own things. You would be buried with depictions of your life, of what you did. So I just think it... it it's like a way of showing who you are as a person um, at the time, because there were really no other ways to do that. Like you couldn't like write, write it down a lot of the time, or you couldn't like, you know, it was usually pretty expensive to commission stuff like this. So really your death would be unfortunately, you know, the only time you could really depict yourself in history. So I just, I, yeah, I just think that's a really interesting aspect of like why, if you like you know that gets left behind <laughs> oh, that's that's very interesting um i just know that you know a lot of art is associated with with um burials and so i just kind of wanted to to get your perspective on it well and i also think it's a big part of a lot of um not only like um myth not mythology but like oh, like cultures and stuff um but 
my god, wait, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> no worries. Yeah, I'll just move on. I completely forgot what I was going to say. Oh my god. Oh, it was like a cool thought, too. Shoot. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just like completely blanked. That's okay. It happens <laughs> to the best of us. Exactly. <clears throat> so I guess we'll move on then. We'll move on to the last piece we have. Actually, there's there's two pieces here. They're, um, they're related, kind of. But they're related. Okay, so they're, they're both bull's head writings, and they're from yeah. a really long time ago, 15, 1550 to 1450 yeah. BC. So these are also, these would probably be my fa favorite um, Minoan uh, artifacts, just because there's like, in my own artwork, I have like kind of an affinity towards drawing like cows and bulls and stuff, um, as well as other animals. Um, but I think, you, especially the one that's at the Metropolitan Museum, I love that one so much because if you look at it from like today's perspective, it's just such this like goofy looking object. Like it has these like very silly proportions and like it's not like naturalistic at all, like the other bull's head writing um, that I'm gonna talk about next. Um, so I just think this one is such an interesting, um, you know, especially for the time period it was in, like such an interesting example of artwork because, you know, Greek and Roman artwork is so, you know, well known for like the really naturalistic and accurate depictions it has. So to have like this like really goofy looking little like three-dimensional <laughs> writing object, I think is such a like fun example of like how the culture wasn't just like really like naturalistic depictions i mean more so naturalistic depictions are more so with like roman artwork than greek artwork greek artwork does have a lot more like um kind of i don't want to say cartoony but like simplistic um styles but yeah I, I also think it's interesting that this was related to um kind of rituals like ritual use um which obviously carry like because once you know it's part of ritual use it carries with it its own kind of like um meaning and stuff like that especially because in minoan culture the name like minoan is derived from the minotaur myth so their actual name was something completely different i i can't i don't think they have like i don't think we know what their actual name was but we call them the minoans based on that myth because we found so many like bullheads and it was such a big part of their culture. So these particular pieces like really show how important it was to, you know, um, the people at the time. Um, I always thought it was, I always thought it was King Minos who was the, uh, what should we call it? Cause I know like the Minotaur and Minos were like related, mm -hmm. it but could I always be that thought too. that's, cause wasn't it that the Minoans were just like his people and that's why they were called that? From, uh, I mean, that might be right. From what I learned in class, my teacher explained it as, like, it was based off of the myth. Um, I don't know. I'd have to look that up a little bit more. Just, that was just actually gonna, what I learned. I'm going to look at it right now. I'm pretty yeah. sure, because, like, technically the myth is part of the king. Because, yeah. like, King Minos was a... So, yeah, it derives from the mythical King Minos, um, who identified the site at Nassos with the labyrinth and the Minotaur. So, basically... They were named after the king, and the Minotaur was also named after the king because the Minotaur was um, basically it was this it was this like you know it was a baby originally yeah because it was this monster they put it in a, a labyrinth which was commissioned by King Minos 
<laughs> so I think that's yeah. Sorry, I just had yeah. to. No, that makes sense. I just I I wasn't like a hundred percent sure because the only source I was using for that was my like um, art history class. Um, right. But yeah, that that definitely makes sense. Um, but yeah, um, the other one is really similar to the first one in terms of like description. But I love this one so much, especially because the material used are like so interesting. Like it's it's made of serpentine, rock crystals, and red jasper. Um, and the horns are technically some kind of metal, but because it was added later on because of time, it just kind of broke off. Um, we don't know what the original ones were made out of. Um, I'm assuming some kind of gold or something like that. But I just think this one is so interesting because it's used for the exact same thing as the last um, bull's head writing, but it looks completely different. Um, which I just think is so cool that like this culture would have these two like completely different depictions of the exact same animal used for the exact same thing um so again i think that just kind of shows how like much like today like you would have different styles of artwork at the same time even though when you think of this culture you're going to think of the kind of more um classic greek style um so yeah i don't know those those are along with william those are like my favorite some of my favorite like art historical like objects um but yeah <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I think was, that's, that's where I'm going to end on terms of like just talking your ear off about historical objects. No worries. I'm picturing just like a Greek guy just like grabbing that bowl by both of the horns and just like drinking from the mouth. Uh, <laughs> Actually, that's like such a, it's such an interesting like just a picture of like yeah. It's funny, though, that's where the, the um, water actually comes out of, or the drink comes out of. It would be, like, the mouth, so it's basically just, like, spitting up the libation, which I think is really funny. Um, do you guys know how writings were? Uh, if you'd like to explain it for the audience, I'm sure. sure. Yes, I, I, even I if we do. Yeah, yeah. I have actually I just, not heard I'll, of a writing I'll before try explain it because I really only know a little bit, but from what I learned, it's basically, it uses gravity to kind of like siphon the liquid up into the um, hole it's poured out of. And in the top version, you have to actually cover the hole for it to work, for it to actually pour the water out. Um, I'm not sure if that's how the top one works, but the, or sorry, the bottom one works, but the top one, you have to cover the hole for like the, uh, for it to work. Huh. That's cool. A lot of like Greek technology is just, it's yeah. like interesting to think about. Well, it's so cool that a lot of like current technology was developed or like this, the like kind of, I guess, seed for a lot of current technology was developed like such a long time ago and we're still using it. Yeah. You know, because you said it's based on gravity, and we yeah. talked about based on gravity in, in 1500 BC. Meanwhile, we've got our old pal Isaac Newton in 1700 CE, <laughs> over 3,000 years later, claiming credit for discovering gravity, which yeah. clearly there were people before him that had, you know. I mean, I feel like he just principle. basically, like, named it. Like, yeah. I mean, so everyone, he named like, it and he put it on a, he named it and he put it on an outer space scale. But yeah. <laughs> clearly, it had been, even even space had been well. It took a guess at it. I wouldn't consider the, the guesses of Ptolemy and Aristotle to be incredibly accurate. But uh, they were thinking about it. They were trying. They were trying. Well, even like if you think about <laughs> architecture, like ancient architecture, like you obviously had to have gravity as a factor. Like you weren't right. gonna make some like a a building that was gonna be skinnier on the bottom than it would be on the top because gravity is gonna make that fall over. Right. <laughs> 
So now um, we are actually going to take a quick commercial break because this is kind of where the episode splits in, and we will be right back. Okay, so uh, welcome back from the break. Uh, we are now going to shift from talking about specific pieces of art into the implications today and the discussion of appreciation versus appropriation. So uh, I'm actually going to let Katie kick this one off. So Awesome. Um, so I think that like we're at a point where where we can kind of like make a sharp turn from this prehistoric or art that shows up in prehistory, meaning before writing, um, to a more modern day um, sense. And so I think that Native American art in particular is kind of what we are balancing today um, in terms of not only like the production of um, Native American art, because there are people who market um, what they claim to be authentic indigenous art as their own. Um, and so there are a lot of um, laws that have been put in place that protect um, that protect Native artists, because now we have the, this, this production of art that isn't authentic, but that is being marketed as authentic. Um, and so one of the laws that was kicked into place to protect um, indigenous artists was the Indian Arts and Crafts Act of 1990. And essentially what it does is it prohibit, prohibits misreputation in the marketing of Indian arts and crafts um, produced within the United States. It essentially states that it's illegal to offer or display for sale or sell anything um, that suggests that it was Indian produced in Indian product or the product of a particular Indian or Indian tribe um, within the United States when, when it's not like authentic. Um, and so some of the um, consequences of not following this act um, is that an individual can face civil or criminal, criminal penalties up to a $250,000 fine. Um, they can go to prison for five years. So there are some very, you know, severe implications for this act. Um, a lot of that has to do with who controls cultural history. Um, and so part of that sort of, you know, this debate that's happening, who controls history, who controls the narrative, is that um, a lot of art, as we have previously discussed, has um, funerary um, or, you know, sacred context or it is present in burials. Um, something that protects art that is connected to a um, funerary context or a burial context is the Native American Graves Protection and Re Repatriation Act. And it essentially says that you cannot destroy um, any anything that's at a Native grave site. Um, it also says that if any artwork was found within that, you know, grave site, it has to be returned or re repatriated to the tribe or um, Native nation that it belongs to. Um, and the the th the thing that spearheads this is who who controls history who controls you know their narrative um and i think that this connects to um ap appreciation versus appropriation because i think in modern day whether it's you know the indigenous community whether it's the black community whether it's any community that's deemed as like a minority um i think that there's a very thin line between actually appreciating and giving credit to the culture that produced it versus taking that art without giving the recognition of it. Um, so I think that in a very, 
you know, strict sense, you know, you have laws put in place such as, you know, NAGPRA protecting the graves and the art that exists at those graves. And then this um, Indian Arts and Crafts Act, um, that's just one very specific example. Um, these acts are very, um, very new to the United States, you know, the 1990s on, which is a little, which is a little sad to say, um, because it's not that long ago, very much modern U.S. history. Um, and we can tie in other cultures as well, but that's kind of all I have to say on that. And um, we just need to keep in mind how we are representing and trying to collaborate with other cultures, making sure we're within that line. So. Yeah, I think it harkens back to like we we're talking. I mentioned the melting pot earlier. Like that's the line. Like you know, America wants to be this great melting pot that appreciates all cultures and you know assimilates all cultures, but. We also have to do it while you know allowing those cultures to continue to exist <laughs> where you know if we're just going to say that's american now and we're not going to we're not going to acknowledge like what it used to be or what it still is very much still part of the identity of the people that do still exist and i think you know the, the melting pot idea of wanting to be this great assimilator we also have to understand there's a lot of power in that in the fact that you know cultures can be destroyed if you decide to just kind of bring everything in without giving credit. Right. On that, on that end, there's actually um, something like else connected to the native sort of perspective in that um, there's, there's like specific um, art that is created for the specific purpose of trade and exchange. And so within that, you have Oh my gosh, wait, give me, give me one second to connect this. Um, okay, anyway, so people started taking native art because they thought that indigenous cultures were going to disappear. They literally thought that these nations were going to dis disappear rightfully so because we, you know, obliterated their cultures, took their land, all of that. We could get in an, a whole episode on this. Um, but part of the reason that that their art was taken, their art was replicated, was because they thought that these cultures were, were going to disappear. Um, not, I guess that sort of connects to what you were saying earlier, Kay, about how, like, leaving your imprint on, you know, the record on, in, in history through art. Um, but I just think it's ironic that, that they're taking Native art and keeping it as their own, even though it's not, like, a record of their personal history, if that makes sense. It's not actually, their history. I actually learned a little bit about um, Native art after, like, when, I, I honestly don't know much about the history about it, but when they started, like, taking people and, like, putting them in re-education camps and prisons and stuff, um, there's a lot of artwork that was made just on, like, any piece of paper they could find to kind of document their experience. And it felt so ironic that that artwork was then in like this big collection owned by someone who wasn't like native at all. So it's just so sad that that artwork is like now taken and displayed in like a completely different like um, place than it should be. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I also think it comes up a lot with celebrities taking from from different yeah. cultures and not recognizing where it comes from. I mean, the Kardashian, the Kardashian Jenner oh, clan <laughs> comes comes to mind, right? Yeah. You see, yeah. you, you know, you see this sort of adoption of yeah. like 
like black art or like like trends that are you know specifically you know culturally significant to the black community um but then they're they're sort of taking the, these hairstyles taking this fashion um you know this whole thing about you know black fishing and appearing to have darker skin than you do like i think that while it's not like the same as like like that traditional like art like a sculpture like fashion and clothing and all of that like i just think that the biggest part of appropriating is not is not acknowledging where it came from and not acknowledging why it's important to the culture that created it um i don't know how how you all feel about that but no, no i totally like, agree oh, sorry <laughs> no no you can you can go first no i was just gonna say yeah there's definitely a line between like culture appropriation and appreciation and people especially celebrities cross like appreciation into appropriation all of the time and it's it's so bad because especially when they have these big platforms the fact that they won't acknowledge or at least like give credit to the fact that that like this isn't their own like personal like they didn't come up with it it's not theirs and they'll just like take it and like be like oh this is mine now it's just such a big problem and i feel like there is a very distinct line a lot of the time between appropriation and appreciation and so people a lot of people just act like like oh like is this okay can i like appropriate this like i don't know i just i don't understand how people can not see that there's like a big difference between like taking someone's culture and art and just kind of being like oh i love this this is really cool yeah like i think recently like i know we mentioned you know the one family that gets into trouble <laughs> a lot but i think also recently adele got into trouble with you know yeah. the jamaican culture and uh I think there definitely were, there were, you know, a lot of, there were people arguing both sides of that, where there were people saying, you know, oh, she's trying to give it a platform, but like, really, is it her place to be giving it a platform? Like, it's just kind of seems like a colonizer kind of taking the culture back. Uh, but to move from the celebrity conversation, uh, unless anybody else wants to say something about that. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> I um I wanted to talk a little bit, and I like to rant about this because I have a lot of problems with this part of the world, uh, the Vatican. So oh, I yeah. <laughs> so I think yeah, yeah, <laughs> you can't have uh you can't have an episode about the cultures and the arts of the world without talking about the Vatican because Christianity has spread, and I'm not saying Christianity is a bad thing inherently, but the 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 in the institutional the institution of christianity has spread throughout the world for millennia and uh if you go to the vatican uh, and i was lucky enough to be able to go to italy to see family a few years ago and i got to see the vatican and if you go into their museum they have a sprawling museum with artifacts from all over the world and you know you realize that this is mostly stolen goods and the scariest part is you see, you know, the statistics that they show about 3% or 2% of what they of what they have at all times. Which means we have an organization that has been given, you know, country status. It has it has internationally recognized country status that is sitting on 98% of what they're sitting on in their vaults is stolen goods that they don't even show to the world. And I know this is, you know, a lot of people love the Vatican, a lot of people appreciate the Vatican, and a lot of people will argue 
that you know the Vatican is putting on display all the different cultures. But I think it kind of goes back to uh, the Adele argument on on a bigger scale, where yeah, you know the Vatican is a huge platform that millions, millions, and millions of people get to see every year, and Adele is a huge artist who gets to represent whatever she wants. But is it their place to be representing the artifacts of a different culture? Right. Is it her place? I don't think so. Yeah, I think that museums in particular um, have gotten a lot of heat for for. For instance, like a big part of the the project I did on indigenous art last year talked about how in museums it gives the the museum like depiction of the art, but the the you know native perspective of the art or whatever cultures um, you know have been you know stolen have had art stolen from them. It, it depicts the it depicts the art in the culture that stole it. it it depicts it from the people who steal it depict how it is how people yeah. interpret it but then then you have you go back to that well who who controls the narrative right like shouldn't mm -hmm. the people who created the art piece control the narrative of how the art piece is interpreted since they you know they were the ones who created it um, but yeah okay you look like you want yeah, to talk, no, so. I, I, I was actually just talking about this in class the other day that's such a big aspect of displaying artwork especially when i was talking about this in my african art class especially when they're displaying stuff that's like you can really only understand it within the context of the culture and within the context that the people of that culture have kind of imbued upon the mask like something i didn't know about um Af like african judicial masks was that it um first of all is supposed to represent a spiritual being so it's not actually meant to be like a person it's like this when you're wearing the mask you're not a real person you're like a spiritual being um and another really big aspect of those masks is it's actually the mask is only a really small portion of the whole costume it's meant to be worn as a costume and when you take it away from that whole costume and you take it away from that whole context you're not even displaying like the art the way it's meant to be displayed so yeah there's like that really big problem of having it shown in like the the culture of the colonizer that yeah, that's like definitely a big problem with a lot of artwork. Um, and I guess to just to go back to like that Vatican thing a little bit earlier, um, that is also just so like incredibly insane that there's that much artwork that they're just sitting on and they don't show that like no one from that ori those original cultures even get to see. Like even though, yeah, it's accessible to millions of people, it's only accessible to people that are able to travel, that are able to get a plane ticket, that are able to get a ticket to the Vatican. Like. Um, I was also fortunate enough to go and you have to go at a specific time, you have to get a ticket, you have to wear specific types of clothing, like just to get to go and like see what, what they, just what they're like displaying at the time. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree that there's like a big problem with like how you display artwork. Yeah, and I know this is like a bit of a, like a pop culture dump for the episode because we've talked about <laughs> it a lot. Uh, bringing back to what you said with the, um, the spiritual being. I was actually going to talk about this already, but I think it's another another connection. Uh, we saw the movie Black Panther in 2018 talked about, uh, you know, he this, the Black Panther is this spiritual being and he puts on like the mask and the whole outfit. But also, it, it really reminded me this the museum segment when Michael B. Jordan goes in and it's like, that's not where that's from. That's from Wakanda. <laughs> like, yeah, and he's like, obviously Wakanda isn't a real place, but 
this is you know they're they're making a they're making a uh, they're making a comment on the British Museum's you know the, the the British Museum doesn't really have an authority to know where in Africa they got their stuff from because yeah maybe they named the place maybe they you know can place it where they thought that they got it from in Africa what tribe it was from but unless you're from the people that made it or that found it or that you know created the art you really don't know the true story of it and you really can't pretend to know the true story of it unless you've either asked the people or been the people so yeah yeah um sorry <laughs> uh yeah especially because um if we're going to talk a little bit about like borders and where people have drawn borders, um, especially with um, African art, that's a really big issue of a lot of uh, tribes and just peoples um, are stuck like between borders. So you can't even like definitively say, oh, it's from this country or this culture, because it could actually be from someone who's like just a couple hundred miles away over like a different border. Yeah. So, yeah. To, to sort of give context onto why that is, it's because when, you know, we see the you know, scramble for Africa, um, all of these European countries or these, you know, more quote civilized, um, that's not the yeah. appropriate <laughs> word to use, but, you know, um, when all of these countries, <laughs> yeah, no. um, so when all of these countries came into Africa, they, they drew their own boundaries for where they wanted Africa to be like what like what sections they wanted Africa to have and so a lot of those boundaries conflicted where um with how the tribes naturally sat on the continent so they're called superimposed boundaries but the reason we see you know that sort of disconnect and that you know that variation is because these countries came in and they didn't respect the natural the natural boundaries that already existed and they're like we're just going to draw boundaries we don't care if it like cuts in the middle of a tribe or whatever so that's kind of like the historical background for why you know we see that struggle cool well uh we've definitely we've covered uh kind of the museum aspect and the the placing things mm -hmm. in, in history aspect uh but uh yeah is there anything else that you guys want to talk about in the appropriation versus appreciation argument or um i mean <laughs> there's like a ton of stuff we could talk about but like we're gonna be here for like hours <laughs> if we're gonna talk like specific examples yeah i think just like try not to i mean if you're going to yeah. if if you're going to appreciate another person's culture try to try to educate yourself and others while you're doing that so like if you are going to borrow from a culture you better be educated on what that specific um art form or trend like why it's important to that culture and you're, you should be ready to educate yourself and others on it if you're going to to do that I would say avoid it at all costs because it's just not respectful to the culture that created it. But if you are going to borrow from a culture, you need to acknowledge that you're borrowing from it. Um, it's not it's not a Halloween costume. Like it's yeah. it's people's culture. So I think that keeping that in mind and respecting it, and I mean, 
I guess like in terms of educating in your, yourself and others, I, I guess I mean in terms of like if you've already appropriated, like go back and acknowledge when you appropriated, why you, you, why like, well, you appropriated because you weren't educated. Now educate yourself and educate others. Like I think that in terms of we've, we've talked about celebrities, if you're going to make amends, that's how you make amends. You stop appropriating and you start appreciating the culture for what it truly was. So Yeah, and then you start paying that forward by educating others. Yeah. I think that's yeah. definitely an especially good thing to remind people of since today is Halloween. It's like just so sad that a lot of people can't, you know, even like have a good time. Like, I mean, obviously not this year, but in past years, because they're so worried about you know their culture and them as a person being depicted in like such a like horrible way like like wearing people and cultures as costumes is just so wrong like i i it just baffles me that people can like be like oh yeah this is totally fine like imagine like i don't know it's just yeah I, I, there's just such a big issue with that and yeah just like like katie said don't don't do it at, and avoid it at all costs Okay, well, I think that's definitely a great place to end. Uh, it's a powerful message, and it's especially true today on Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you guys are actually, the, the, the audience is going to be seeing this on Day of the Dead, uh, yeah. <laughs> because this is going to be coming out on Sunday. So uh, no matter what holiday you're celebrating right now, if you're celebrating that one, if you're, if you're celebrating uh, Dia de los Muertos, or you're celebrating Halloween, uh, uh, enjoy the holiday. Uh, have a. I don't actually. I don't know if. I guess yeah. Dia de, uh, Dia de los Muertos is a is a happy holiday, uh, even though it's very you know respecting the dead. But enjoy the enjoy the uh, enjoy the holiday. Respect the holiday. If you know you're going to try to again try to appreciate someone else's culture, do it respectfully. And we will see you guys next week. Thank you for listening.